the wedding worked. <laughs> Long time coming. Jeremy and Alexandra are united in marriage. Uh, they're off having fun in, I believe, like Oregon or Washington, somewhere on the West Coast, and that godforsaken expensive land. Uh, but there's coffee there, so good for them. They'll have a good time. Um, <laughs> for those of you that are visiting with us, uh, I am not our regular preacher. Uh, that would be Pastor Matt. He's on a kind of an extended time of rest right now for this month, and uh, it has been my pleasure to fill the pulpit. And uh, I will be as well next week, and then the following week this month, Greg uh, will, be, will be speaking for us. So today we are shifting gears um, in our Habits of Grace series. On our Habits of Grace series, we've been talking about really three different streams of grace that God has given us, uh, through which we are to not receive grace in the sense of salvific grace, as then we achieve more and more salvation, but a place for us to rest and receiving just the ongoing good grace of God in our lives. And the idea of these streams is that we can rest in them. We are to position ourselves in them so that we can find uh, refuge and strength in those places. And really kind of a premise for the whole idea of the streams is that there are those in the church who would come and say, just feel as if I'm not getting what I'm supposed to, uh, from God. I, I don't, I'm having trouble uh, living the Christian life. I'm having trouble getting along with those around me. I'm having trouble with these things. And particularly as a pastor and counselor, my first questions are these three streams. Are you in the scriptures? Are you praying? Are you in the body? And those three streams of grace are where God has designed for us to discipline ourselves in these habits, these ongoing things, that really are markers of what it means to be a believer. And so as we position ourselves in these streams, we receive grace in a very real sense. And so today, we are jumping into our final stream, as it were. Uh, we are moving away from prayer and talking about Christian fellowship. And really, a kind of starter for today is this idea of lessons in good listening. And, and we will get to that, but in order to understand that, we do need to kind of set up some of the, this last stream and understand what fellowship looks like. So we've talked about how we have God's Word, we have the Scriptures, right? We have God's ear, we have prayer, and then we have His body, that is, the fellowship of Christians. And so our text today is in James chapter 1. I'm going to flip there. We'll be in verses 12. 21. Go ahead and read our text for today. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, for every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures." And so know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, 
slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Let's pray. Father God, as we approach your text this morning, we pray that you would help us see Jesus, that you would help us see how we are able to be part of his body, how you have, have made us a part of him. And Father, we thank you for your revelation, your clear instruction to us on what it looks like to live in that body. Father, you've not united us with him just to leave us wondering, but Father, you've united us to him in such a way that we can grow up together united in the body. And Father, we can live in this rest and in this peace together. So Father, I pray as we begin this last leg of our journey through these habits of grace that you will encourage us in this. But Father, you also challenge us to help us see rightly who we are, where we are, and Father, the responsibility that you've laid on each of us. Father, we love you and we thank you for this and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I would love to just take apart this entire passage. Really, at the end of the day, our focus is on verse 19 and only part of that. We're talking about letting every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that everyone knows this verse. It's something that's pulled out all the time, particularly by parents, right? Um, it, it's something that we just use as kind of a Christian cliche, and it's thrown out there, and we totally miss the context. In fact, there's about three different things in this one passage that we do that very treatment to, and then don't even realize that it's all the same passage until we look at James. And we just take these little Christian pills and, and dispense them, and that is not helpful. We need to see how they work together. And so most of why James comes to the point where he can give this, know this brothers, is because of the context. And so we're going to work through a little bit of that as we try to build a picture of what James is, is, is getting at when he talks about us being quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. Why can we get to those imperatives. Why can we say that? Where does it come from? And James certainly addresses that in the surrounding area. So when we look at today's idea of beginning this journey in community together, I, I think it's interesting to see these three streams really converge and, and kind of build uh, from the first that, to feed each other. It, it's really hard to take this discipline or this habit of grace of community and apply it by itself. Just as it would have been hard to try to take the idea of prayer and apply prayer in your life just by itself. You see, both of these two streams really precipitate from the first and the fact that we need the Word. And just as we talked about at the beginning of prayer, the only reason we can speak to God is because He spoke first. And so when we start with the Word, it leads to prayer. And when we have the Word and we are in fellowship with God, then we are united in fellowship with each other as we are part of the body, part of the word that is Jesus. And so we can't, if, you, if you've not been following along and paying attention in the past uh, what, nine weeks, and some of this will be just static and it won't fit because it was all built upon the word. And so as we approach this idea of fellowship, we have to recognize that it comes from our understanding and our commitment to the word of God. And so, as we talk about this idea of fellowship, we need to say, where does it come from? Where are we going? Uh, what is this about? And I think it's important for us to remember uh, first, and start with this, that the gravity, uh, the, the weightiness with which 
we gather? Why, why we come together? Why you're even in here in this room right now? Why do we come together to hear the word? And really, here's the, here's the key. Perseverance is at stake. Perseverance is at stake. As a famous Sicilian once taunted, death is on the line, right? Death is at, is at hand, and perseverance is the mighty fight that we are about. And so, brothers and sisters, with all seriousness, I would say that you would do well to remember that each day your eternal destiny is at stake. We have been called to persevere. Now, listen, I, I, get, I get it. There is great rest in our salvation, all right? There's great rest in our salvation in the finished work of Christ on the cross. But we are called to work out our salvation. We are called to persevere. We are warned extensively of the dangers of falling away. There's, there's much work to be done. And, and listen, I'm, I'm not advocating for losing your salvation. I'm advocating for making sure you're saved. That's what James is talking about. That's what Paul talks about. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, recognizing that we will one day be separated, the sheep and the goats. And there is a very real warning from Jesus that we will have done all of this work in his name, and he still not know ours. Now, how can we know? How can we know that we are saved? Read First, first John. It is a great one. How do we do that? By persevering. And so in this, in this great tension of Scripture, uh, of the idea of our salvation is accomplished, and there is danger of falling away, which I don't have time to unpack all of that right now, we can rest in this tension that God has called us to work. So I want to call us to that work. Final rest is coming, but for now we work in obedience. You heard Greg earlier read in our liturgy, Ephesians 2, that God has prepared and planned good works for us to walk in. There is something for us to be about. And the problem is, is when I challenge people in discipleship, particularly with the idea of working hard at this Christian thing, right? I, I always see like a sense of dismay on their faces. And I know it comes from a couple different things. One is just the fact that we have to work at all. But another is that, that always impending sense of I'm not working hard enough. And both of those are okay. To the one, I say, yes, we are about a great task. God has called us to be a kingdom citizen. And for the one who says, I can't, it just seems like I can't do enough, I say, yes, you can't. There's grace. And so that is the tension with which we walk and that which, which we are called to today. But the simply simplified version of what I'm talking about, and if I could preach this sermon in 30 seconds, and hopefully I encourage you on this challenge of work, it would simply be this. Be obedient. Be obedient. That's it. I mean, our text today really encourages that simple truth. When it comes down to it, it's simply be obedient. We think about our children. What is our desire for them? We love them no matter what they do. What would we want of them? Be obedient. Is there tension that they will one day fall off and that they will always be kept? Yeah, that still plays out in family. In the same way in the family of God, there's a tension of that we will always be kept and we can fall away. It's not based on our work, but we are still called to be obedient. Our text really encourages us in that same thing. 
And so for us to really sense the, the idea of the gravity of why we come together, it is to persevere. Look what's on the line just from our text. In verse 12, it says, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. In verse 15, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Verse 16 says, do not be deceived. Verse 21 encourages us to receive with meekness or humility the implanted word, which is able to what? Save your souls. And so at stake here is a crown of life, death, deception, salvation of our souls. And so how do we avoid death and deception and rather receive a life everlasting? And James' simple answer is the word. And that's why it's so important for us to expand this text and pick up some of what's going on. Because all throughout this passage and even beyond it in James chapter 1, he's talking about the word. He's talking about the word. In fact, I cut this passage off right where we were several weeks ago in being doers of the word. You remember that? That when we hear the word, but we do not remember it or apply it, it is like we look in a mirror and forget what we look like. Remember that sermon? That's right after this passage. He's talking about the word throughout. And the only way that he can make these claims or commands of us is the fact that the word is central. Because in verse 18, it says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. In verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word those are the means that is the means the word of god is the means by which we avoid death and deception and receive life everlasting that is james's argument and so for us today knowing why we're here i want to encourage you that christian fellowship is a journey of obedience to the word of life christian fellowship is a journey of obedience to the word of life Now, the kind of fellowship that we're talking about here, when we talk about the gravity of why we gather, is, is, is not a common love for pizza and pop and a nice, clean evening of fun among the fellow churchified. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what we're looking for. It's not the fellowship hall, and that's where the fellowship automatically happens. The commonality, the partnership, the fellowship that we witnessed throughout Acts, even, just a few months ago, found its essence in their common Christ and their common life or death mission together in his summons to take the faith worldwide in the face of impending persecution. That is what unified them. That is what their commonality, partnership, and fellowship was centered around. And so I think we have to actually ask the question, how do we join that life or death mission? How do you, in America today, join a life-or-death mission like that in Acts. In churches, we always want to talk about being a church like Acts. We want to get back to that original first church look. But what does that even look like in our life? I mean, it'd be really easy for me to just leave it there as some big overture, right? I'm talking about the gravity, the weightiness of why we have to persevere. In, in church, we are gathered around a life-and-death mission for souls. And I could leave it there. But we need to define what could actually make life difficult for us here. And, and I think the easiest question into the heart on this, it, we have to be honest with ourselves, is the question, what are you afraid to lose or give up? 
What are you afraid to lose or have to give up? You know, when you think about these types of serious aspects of life, these things that are actually costly, it's hard for us to think that deep. There is just not that much cost for us here. There isn't. And so without trying to make it super spiritual and and, and try to really make something memorable, I want to call us to some regular but difficult things that we might have to do. For instance, life and death missions for you may be that difficult conversation about faith that you need to have with your parents. It may be that coffee with a coworker to tell them that you have the hope for their marriage. It may be giving up a relationship because of its danger to your soul, the fact that it could destroy you. It could mean trusting those in the body on something that you don't want and you don't even understand. It may even just simply be disciplining yourself to love the Word and to be an effective soldier on the battlefield of earth, to actually join the fight. I mean, it really goes back to two weeks ago. Are you a kingdom citizen or not? Are you a kingdom citizen or not? You know, I I think back to when I was growing up and what church was in my life, and it was just the gathering when we got together. I didn't know what it looked like to live out my faith. I didn't even realize it was Sunday until it was Sunday. And even then, I didn't start actually participating until I started playing music. Then it was an extra night a week. (laughs) Then it was some people that I knew a little bit better. But then, as I grew in my faith, and particularly as I started serving in the church on staff, it's Sunday to Sunday for us, and then Wednesday and Sunday for us, and those events, those days... And I didn't know what it meant to be a shepherd, a pastor, to care for the souls of people. I knew what it looked like to run programs and and to keep people happy. And even now, as we look through these weeks, how easy is it for us to just let our faith be something rather than to be everything? What does it mean for you to live a life and death mission day by day, to wake every morning and realize it's time to go to battle? For me, as I've told you in the past weeks, I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but it is an ongoing fight in my life. Every meal is a fight for faith. Every time I need to discipline myself to drive to the gym is a fight for faith. It is a daily thing, a daily thing with which we fight, and it has to be a life or death thing to you, or it is not going to persevere. And it's something that we have to realize that we don't do by ourselves. And that's what I'm trying to call us to today, but we have to start with the former. You see, when we look at real Christian fellowship, we have to have the kind of fellowship that is not static. In fact, Jesus won't allow his church to stay static. This local congregation in particular, we will not stay the same. Jesus will not leave us in the same state. We should be moving and progressing and fighting the battle for the kingdom. And we can leave no man behind. So while the church is always going, we are constantly bringing those that are lagging or falling away with us. 
You see, our fellowship is in Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1.9, and in His Spirit, 2 Corinthians 13.14. We are fellow heirs of a divine inheritance, Romans 8.17 and Ephesians 3.6. We are commissioned. We have a mission to be about, Matthew 28. We are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, Ephesians 4.1. And it's to be in unity, all of Ephesians 4 and all of John 17. Exposing darkness, Ephesians 5.11. Restoring those who wander, Galatians 6. And so that all people will know that you are his disciples by our love for one another, John 13.35. Is that what you're about today? Is that what you planned for this morning when you woke up and made your coffee? Is that what you were thinking when you were driving here? Probably not. Probably not. It's hard. It is hard. It's hard to constantly be about the mission. It's hard to constantly be about the things that God has for us. Why? Because our kingdom is always calling. Our own personal kingdoms are always calling. And and honestly, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, it's hard because we simply value other things more. We simply value other things more. And the problem is that in our Phariseeism, in our self-righteousness, we'll say, oh, the church is really the most valuable thing in my life. Jesus, my faith, that's not how we practically live. But we fool ourselves into thinking that that's the case. If we could be honest with ourselves and say, no, my heart wanders. My heart desires the things of this earth. My heart is aimed at anything and everything but Christ then we might be able to get somewhere. But it is hard. I'm not here to tell you that this is an easy thing. It is a discipline. This is our lifelong journey. But again, together. Because the answer that we're looking for, how do we fix this? How do, how do we fix this misdirected heart? How do we fix this wrong citizenship? Is to say we have to fix our eyes. We have to fix our eyes. We are looking at the wrong How can we be more about this mission? We fix our eyes. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix, this is the NIV, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. If you want to be about the kingdom, then you fix your eyes on what is not seen, because that will last. What is seen is only temporary. Hebrews 12 likewise uses the same language. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And so how can we do that? How can we fix our eyes on the unseen? How are you supposed to look at that which you cannot see? How are you supposed to fix your eyes on Jesus, no longer with us, but risen on high? How do we do that? Fix your eyes on each other. Look to the side of you. Fix your eyes on each other. Where do I get that? Hebrews 10, 24-25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is Christian fellowship is a journey of obedience. It says keep meeting and keep your eyes on one another. What do we typically use this passage for? The implication, keep meeting, right? He's saying that as an aside if you read this rightly. That's not the point. 
The point is the action that happens when you meet together. And so the question is, who did you come here today to serve? Who in this body, in this room right now, do you have an encouragement for today? Who were you thinking about during the week? This is hard for me. Preparing the sermon. It's easy for me to just, particularly me, even more so than Matt and Greg, to just dive into the text and only do the text. I'm all about that. I can do that all day, and I will stand up here, and I will give you the words of life, and they will not hit your heart because I didn't think about you. My job as a pastor is to care for my sheep. I have to take the word and feed, not simply present. And my proclamation, it's for life change, your life change, not just life change. This is hard. You see, in the original language for this passage, there is no how. Literally, it's saying consider each other, not consider how to stir up one another, but consider each other for love and good deeds. And that's a weird English, so that's why they, they changed the phrase, but consider each other for love and good deeds. Know each other. Get close. Stay close. And go deep. So the idea is that we consider particular persons. Fix your eyes on them and interact with them such that you exhort and inspire them to love and good deeds specifically fitting to their life. And so here we taste how potent and personal is fellowship as a means of grace. As partners under God's word and in prayer, a brother who knows me as me and not as just generic humanity speaks the truth in love into my life and gives me a word such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That is an inestimable grace. You cannot put a price on that. See, this person is on a rescue mission. This type of person knows what they're here for. And they're on a rescue mission. That's real love. That's, that's real love. If you want to know what love is, it's this. They recognize the danger, the danger to obedience, the danger that my soul is at stake. Not my, not my membership, not our, our friendship. My soul is at stake. They know what's on the line. They know Hebrews 3, 12-13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, this brother loves me. This sister loves me. Ready for me to blow your mind? Look at this. Look at this passage. This passage, the charge lands not on the drifting saint to get himself back on the path. That's not what he said to do. He didn't say try harder, get back on the path. What did he say? The charge is on the others in the community to have enough proximity to him, enough awareness of him and regularity with him to spot the drift and to war with him, for him, against the sin. You see, this means of grace in this particular circumstance of the the wayward person being brought back by the body has a unique function in the Christian life. 
It's unique. It's not laid on the spiritually weak to muster their strength and to and their will and to do the discipline. But it's for the body to take up discipline on behalf of the wanderer. To mediate grace to the struggler. To preempt apostasy or falling away by putting words of truth and grace into his open ear hole and praying for the Spirit to make them live. That, that is a unique thing in Scripture. We, we see that it is on the body to go to the wanderer and to bring them back. And I think when we start to see some of this, we'll recognize that this body that you're joined to, these group of people in these goofy red chairs on this bouncy floor, is no common thing. You guys are no common thing. I value this church myself for many, many reasons, but one of the biggest is this. I know that this body, you all, the church, she may save my life in the dark night of my soul. You see, as you pass through the valley of the shadow of death and the shepherd comforts you with his staff, you will discover that he has fashioned his people to act as his rod of rescue. When the desire to rest in hearing His voice and the Word is dried up, and when your spiritual energy is gone to speak into His ear in prayer, God sends His body to bring you back. You know, it's typically not the wanderer's own efforts that prompt His return to the fold, but His brothers, being to Him a priceless means of God's grace. And so when you see someone stray... Go after them. Go after them. Love them enough to say something. I, I, in preaching, I can't spend all my time bouncing back and forth in this balance. Too many of us are afraid to say anything because we have to speak the truth in love. What if I don't say it lovingly enough? Speak the truth. That's loving. Start there. Speak Words of life to each other. You're going to do it wrong. That's okay. There's grace. Repent and say it more kindly next time. But say something. There's a news report of teenagers who were standing around watching someone drown and didn't call for help. That's what we do. Say something. Do something. Care for one another to fix our eyes on one another. And it's not enough to do it occasionally. The passage says to exhort one another every day. It's something that I'm guilty of as well. Every day. You value the people in the body so much so that you think about them every day. Consider them every day. That's love. Fix your eyes on one another. <laughs> I love the way that David Mathis explains some of this and talking about the, the value of the body to each other. He says, God has given us each other in the church, not just for company and co-belligerency, uh, which tends to be the, the usual, at least in Baptist churches that I've been in, uh, not just to chase away loneliness and lethargy. But listen, to be to each other an indispensable means of his divine favor. 
We are for each other an essential element of the good work God has begun in us and promises to bring to completion. This is why we fight for membership. This is why we fight for membership, so that we can fix our eyes on each other, so that we can journey in this together, so that we can be committed to covenant with each other for life. Because death is on the line. We fight hard for each other. We care for each other. We look out for one another. We get our eyes off of ourselves and fix them on others. If you want to get past your own kingdom building, if you want to wake up tomorrow and not be worried and consumed by your kingdom, but be concerned about the war, the life and death war and mission that we are on, you have to look away from yourself. I have to look away from what is concerning me, my desires, things that I want to accomplish, and I have to say, what can I do for the kingdom today? What do you have for me to do today? Who am I looking for today? We fix our eyes on each other. And so we journey together in and for obedience. How? Well, the first one, by fixing our eyes on each other. And two, by listening. By listening. Listening is essential for faith and fellowship. Listening is essential for faith and fellowship. Last week I had to give my marks of grace for uh, fasting. This week the uh, half-deaf pastor gets to talk to you about listening. So this is exciting. Um, I'm speaking from a place of weakness here as well, and I'm okay with that. Listening is essential for faith and fellowship. And you say, why listening, pastor? To which I respond, good question, you astute listener, you. Well done. Why listen? What does that have to do with obedience? What does that have to do with community? Why are we in verse 19? Listen. You like that? We must listen because we are prone to be deceived. We must listen because we are prone to be deceived. The greatest challenge to our perseverance is the great deceiver. Capital G, great. Capital D, deceiver. I, I, you forget he's here, or at least his, his cohorts are. He's here. We, we preach on spiritual warfare and you forget he's here. We do spiritual warfare Bible studies and we forget that he's here. He's telling you now that you're not deceived. You, I mean, you did all the right things after all. You, you're part of house gathering, you're in DNA, you even read your Bible and you come to church. You're not deceived. You're doing all the right things that the preachers always tell you to do. He's telling you that you'll really be okay. He says, you won't surely die. That person that needed rescue just a minute ago that we talked about, they were deceived. They were deceived. Sure, whatever they did made sense to them or they wouldn't have done it. We've been talking about that in our counseling class on Wednesday nights. People don't do things for no reason. Now, it may be a twisted reason. It may be a, a, a legit crazy reason, but it's a reason nonetheless. People don't act outside of reason. It makes sense to them, and so they did it. And maybe it was even spiritual looking. 
but they were deceived. How do I know? Look at our text. Verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. You see, part of his bigger argument is that you cannot blame God for you being deceived. You cannot blame God for being a a, a tempter. God does not tempt anyone. He says, no, it's your heart. Your heart. Do not be deceived. It comes from your heart. And so the concern is that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, as we saw in Hebrews. The problem is, is in our sin, we would rather trust ourselves than another. We want to amass our own righteousness than receive another's. We'd rather speak our own mind rather than listen to someone else. We need to listen to others to find out whether we are deceived or not. Listening is essential for faith and fellowship. It's essential for faith and the fact that faith comes from hearing the Word of God preached, right? Uh, Listening is not something that you start. God spoke. He called you, as we saw in this text. He willed for you to come and be implanted by the Word. We listen and have faith. We also listen for faith ongoing. And that we listen now to see if we are deceived. True, sustained, active listening is a great act of faith. And it's a great means of grace, both, listen, for ourselves and for others in the fellowship. And for us all to grow as listeners is not just good for you. It's good for each one of us. The more we grow together in that. Now, here's the problem. (laughs) How do I know if I'm deceived? I don't. That's the nature of what it means to be deceived. I think about particularly magic. I I enjoy it. I, I, I know a good bit of it. I can do some of it, but I'm a terrible performer. You know why? I can do public speaking all day. When it comes to actually executing a trick... I know the answer. I'm not deceived. And the only way to make it look believable is for you to be deceived. But once you know the secret, once you know how it all works, it loses all of its mystery. You know every in and out of what happened. But before you do, there's this sense of wonder and astonishment. (laughs) We're watching America's Got Talent, and a magician comes up and does his thing appears out of nowhere, and I legitimately, even though I have done a lot of research in this, have no idea how he did what he did, and I'm, I'm amazed. But Mel B, who we have to censor on screen the whole time, uh, is <laughs> like, wow, I can't believe that. And they ask, how did he do it? And she goes, magic, duh, like it's real. Like what other explanation could there be? She has no clue, does not want to know, and is completely and wholly deceived. And that's how it works for us. We see something and we're like, that must be the way that it is. This must be true. This must be right. This must be the way that I should go. And we are wholly and completely deceived. 
The nature of magic is the fact that something's going on in the background that we can't see. The nature of life is that something's going on in the background that we can't see. And so how do we know if we're deceived? We can't. Not by ourselves. And here's a clue. If everyone else in my life that actually truly knows me, like I described earlier, says don't do it, well then just dismiss them and do it anyways. I mean, after all, you know you best. Your heart isn't deceitfully wicked, pressing you to do things that are bad for it because it has birthed some desire that will ultimately lead to its own death. That's not you. It's not like they're on a rescue mission for you, like you're drowning in the middle of the water. Not to go all Paul Washer on you here, but you fool. You fool. You say, I, I just don't see it that way. You're blind. But I just don't feel like it will turn out that way. Your heart is wicked. I just don't think that I should. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. If we fail to listen, we will die. That is the truth of this text. Listening is essential for faith and fellowship. We must learn to listen. It takes time. It requires discipline, effort, and intentionality. It's hard for me to listen. Not that I have something to say, but it's physically hard for me to listen. When I'm in conversations with people for extended times, it wears on me because I have to work hard to read lips, to make sure I'm understanding, to make sure that I meet them where they're at. It's hard. It takes extra energy for me to do that. Whether I have my hearing aids in or not, if I have my hearing aids in, then I'm hearing everything that you guys can't hear that I don't really want to hear. It's just noise, and it wears me out. It gives me this fight-or-flight response, like I'm in a jungle, and there's a tiger over there, and it just roars out of nowhere, and you're like, I don't know what that was. Like, there's a tiger, right? It, it wears me out to listen hard. It's difficult, but we have to learn. <laughs> we have to learn to listen. See, for me, I enjoy listening. I don't have to talk all the time. I've been accused of not talking enough sometimes, not in sermons, everywhere else. Um, that, that's something that I like to do. I enjoy asking questions. That's, I enjoy discovering and, and working that way. The Socratic method is my preferred way to teach, which doesn't work well in preaching, um, but the, is the way that I like to function. And so when we talk about listening, it still takes time whether you're good at it or whether you're not good at it, it takes time, but it's something that we're called to, and it's something that's necessary. You see, becoming a better listener hangs not on just one big resolve to do better in a single conversation. Now, all of you after this sermon, just like last week with fasting, and you all went and ate sinners, I did too, uh, just like after this sermon, we're all going to be kind of milling about doing teardown, and you're going to be like, I need to practice listening in this next conversation, right? This is what's going to happen, hopefully, right? And you're going to be like, I need to do this. The problem is, is by the time we get to lunch or tonight, and certainly by tomorrow, we'll forget. Or it's going to be just that one conversation. I really have got to listen in that conversation. I really have to. That's not how it works. It's developing a pattern of little resolves, cultivating the habit to focus in on particular people in specific moments to work hard in the moment-by-moment -moment act and discipline of listening. And so I hope today that you see the fact that this is a journey. This is a journey 
of obedience. It takes time, and we don't walk it alone. We walk it with each other. And it's a journey on which we have to listen to others. We have to listen because they're the ones that sound the warning for us. We have to listen to those around us. And so to leave you with some practical things to do, to give you some hopefully good practices, we want to conclude with six lessons and good listening. Six things that listening does uh, and six things that listening helps with when we think about our relationship, particularly with each other. Now, I, I would love to give you six good lessons in listening to sermons. Um, that would be really helpful, but Greg's going to be doing that in two weeks. So uh, we'll talk about the ministry of the pulpit uh, in, in, that past, in that Sunday. And so this, I'm not just talking about now. Like, I want you to listen, and I think you can apply these things, except for number five. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think you can apply these things. But I'm talking about with each other. In that picture that I painted of the body rescuing people. So number one, good listening requires patience. Good listening requires patience. And half of us are like, I'm out. I'm not patient. I think for many of us, this is one of the big ones. It's just patience. Patience. I do a good job with this with about everybody but my kids. My kids don't get to the point, right? Now, there are other people in my life that don't get to the point, but it at least makes sense, right? You can follow the journey through Middle Earth, but uh, in this one of my children, we're in different universes. And so I can listen to them in a moment, but to listen to them and be patient for them to figure out language is difficult for me. I think many of us are here with each other, though. One author said this. He said, unfortunately, many of us are too preoccupied with ourselves when we listen, instead of concentrating on what is being said, we're busy either deciding what to say in response or mentally rejecting the other person's point of view. So what listening is there to be done? And really practically, what point is there to conversation? And this is the picture that we see in our culture at large. We already know what we think, and we're not open to listening. Not agreeing with them, even listening. We're not open to that. And so as soon as they start to speak, we are either ready to decide how to respond, or we've already rejected everything that they're getting ready to say. How often do we do that in the church? How often do we do that when people are throwing a life raft at us, and we've already rejected it? See, good listening requires concentration and means that we're in with both ears, for me, really one, but with both ears, and that we hear the other person out till he's done speaking. Did you know that it's okay in a conversation to not respond immediately? To listen to them all the way through, think about what you want to say, and respond accordingly? That can happen. Try it today. It's, it's interesting. It's cool. It's fun. Because listen, rarely will the speaker begin with what's most important and deepest. Now, there are some people when I'm in conversation with that I know that I have to give the punchline the first thing that comes out of my mouth or I'm not going to get a chance to get to it. It's just the way that they talk and if I want to speak into their life, it's out the gate with it, right? But most of us are trying to explain why we did something or why we think something and we're trying to give 
context. We're trying to care for them in the way that we speak, which is an entirely different sermon, in the way that we speak, and so we don't get to the important thing until the end. But most of us already have our response before they've even gotten to the important thing. You see, it means silencing the smartphone or the smartwatch. Don't stop their story, but be attentive and patient. Block out distraction and the things that suddenly need to be added to your to-do list. And listen to the image bearer before you. They're not a diversion. They're not an annoyance. They are a image bearer. And if they're a brother and sister in Christ, they're a blood-bought image bearer. Listen to them. Because number two, good listening is an act of love. Good listening is an act of love. Listening and communication has been a big topic in my household for obvious reasons, but also for these reasons. If you want to talk to me, get my attention. (laughs) I will pay attention. But I can't hear very well. Most of you know that I am hearing impaired. Get my attention, and I can be all in. But sometimes I'm not, because I'm not being loving even then. It's an act of love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Half-eared listening despises the brother and is only waiting for a chance to speak and thus get rid of the other person. You know, poor listening rejects and good listening embraces. Poor listening diminishes others and makes them small, while good listening invites them to exist and to matter. And just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the brethren is listening to them. We have to learn. And so good listening goes hand in hand with the mindset of Christ in Philippians 2.5. It flows from a humble heart that counts others more significant than ourselves. Philippians 2.3. And looks not only to its own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 4. It's an act of love to stop and care for someone else. Now there's an implicit lesson there for the speaker. Don't do it willy-nilly. Give them a, a chance where they can engage you. But stop and listen to love them. Number three, good listening asks perceptive questions. Good listening asks perceptive questions. This is the Proverbs. <laughs> the Proverbs writ large. I mean, this is it. The Proverbs say, It is the fool who takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in exercising his opinions. And thus gives an answer before he hears. The Proverbs say, and this is the this is the clarion call of counseling. This is like our motto in counseling. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. The good listening watches carefully for nonverbal communication. It doesn't interrogate and pry into details that the speaker doesn't want to share, but rather it meekly and humbly draws them out, and helps point the speaker to fresh perspectives through careful but genuine leading questions. That is my preferred way. I like asking questions. I think I know where you're going, right? Just like all of us do. My way of doing that, though, is trying to, in the spirit, carefully lead them to where I think they're going, to help them think about things. We talked in our counseling class about the dangerous question of why, 
you start asking someone to actually explain what they mean and why they did something that they did, and you will catch all kinds of hellfire because we don't actually think through why we do what we do. And as soon as you ask that question and they have to stop and reflect on their motives and purposes, it gets really difficult. But the idea is to help lead to good and right understanding for both parties. And so we ask perceptive questions. It shows that we're engaged and we understand or seeking to understand. And it shows that we're trying to make it to the end with them and understand what's going on. Number four, asking perceptive questions is deeply tied to the fact that good listening is ministry. Good listening is ministry. Again, Bonhoeffer says listening can many times be of greater service than speaking. I've certainly found this to be the case in ministry. As we talked about this past Wednesday, there are so many times you sit down with someone, lay level, in the office, doesn't matter, and you just let them talk it out, and you don't have to say anything, and then you go, thanks, man, what you, you said, I didn't say anything. <laughs> you just, you needed to work that out, that's okay. We need a good, safe place for that, because God wants more of the Christian than just our good listening, but not less. I mean, there will be days when the most important ministry that we do is to square our shoulders to some hurting person, uncross our arms, lean forward, make eye contact, and simply hear their pain all the way to the bottom. That's love. That's good ministry to each other. At times, what our neighbor needs most is for someone else to know because we care enough to listen. Number five, good listening prepares us to speak well. Good listening prepares us to speak well. Typically, good listening readies us to minister words of grace to precisely the place where the other is in need. You see, most times we are going to have to actually say something in response. Part of the point of dialogue is that it is a back and forth, but we need to work on the listening aspect. But when it is time to speak, the fact that we listen well prepares us to speak in the best way possible, the most wisdom possible. Again, Bonhoeffer says, we should listen with the ears of God that we may speak the word of God. But the fact that I have spent a lot of time playing strategy games, read a lot, the fact that I have a decent amount of experience with people, and the good gift of discernment from God as an elder, I often do know where people are going in communication. Guess what that means to them? Nothing. It's not helpful. It doesn't matter if I know what they think. I've seen sin play out. I know its patterns. It's nothing new. In your life, in my life, it's the same. That doesn't mean anything to the person that I'm sitting across from at the table. They want me to listen, and they want me to walk with them, not say, that's where you're going. How do you know? I just do. Trust me. I need to journey with them. And the problem is, is that because I know maybe the destination, I don't know them. And so I have to know them. I need to listen to the whole thing. Why? Because I may say something that is helpful, but I probably won't say what is best. 
by God's good grace in my life, as a, particularly as a shepherd in this church, I'll say something helpful because I'm going to speak to you from the Word of God. But I'm probably not aiming at the exact right thing, and it won't be most helpful. If I had listened all the way through, then I would know specifically where it hurts. You know, it's one thing for a doctor to go in and to remove and do some surgery inside the body, and then when you wake up and they say, it still hurts, doctor. I'm like, oh, I know, I took out some of the general inflamed area, but I left that one part. But it's not helpful. You didn't address the problem. I can apply some salve to your life by giving you the word of God, and it will feel good for a time, but if I don't address the issue, then I've not done you any eternal good. And so we listen with the ears of God to hear the specific thing that we may give and speak the word of God. You see, while the fool gives an answer before he hears, the wise person tries to resist defensiveness and to listen from a non-judgmental stance, training himself not to form an opinion or response until the full account is on the table and the whole story has been heard. We have to speak words of life by listening to the whole account. Finally, good listening reflects our relationship with God. Good listening reflects our relationship with God. In the same way that you can listen to someone pray and know what they think about God, you can know almost their whole theology by the way that people pray. The same is true when we think about listening. Our inability to listen well to others may be symptomatic of a chatty spirit that is drowning out the voice of God. And finally, Bonhoeffer says, He who can no longer listen to his brother will soon be no longer listening to God either. He will be doing nothing but prattle in the presence of God too. This is the beginning of the death of the spiritual life. Anyone who thinks that his time is too valuable to spend keeping quiet will eventually have no time for God and his brother, but only for himself and for his own follies. So church, listen well. Why? To avoid deception. Listen to the word, the word that brought us forth and the word that is implanted that is able to save your souls. And good listening is a great means of grace and the dynamic of true Christian fellowship. Not only is it this channel that we're talking about through which God continues to pour His grace into our lives, but it's also His way of using us as a means of grace in the life of others to rescue each other on this life or death mission. And so cultivating habits of good listening may be one of the hardest things that we learn to do. But we will find it worth every ounce of grace and powered effort. You know, and as we seek to be obedient, as we seek to journey in this obedience to the word of life together, we ask even now, of what do I need to repent of, right? How have I been deceived? How am I deceived right now? How have I failed to listen first to God and then to my neighbor? As we celebrate communion here in just a few minutes, we're going to be living out an act of remembrance of being part of one another. We are physically taking parts of the combined bread, part of the body. And so maybe there's someone here that you have something against. 
Maybe you didn't listen well, or maybe they didn't listen well. The Bible instructs us to leave our worship here at the altar. Go and be reconciled. Repent together. Commit together to listen to the word implanted. And then come and take communion together, restored. That unity that we're called to is by listening to one another. Our text tells us that the word produces the righteousness of God. Not anger, not the anger of man, but the word that he is hanging his hat on the whole passage is what actually produces the righteousness of God. And so therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive today, brothers and sisters, in communion, our reminder of the word made flesh and the blood poured out for us. Those of you that are visitors that rest in the blood of Christ and are not living in unrepentant sin, we want to invite you to partake with us and with joy in our common fellowship in Christ. And for those of you that have not yet trusted in Christ, we would urge you to abstain from participation as you've not yet tasted and seen the risen Christ. Observe the the unity and love for each other as this local congregation celebrates the birth, death, and resurrection of our Savior and community together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Father, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for speaking in such a way even that we would understand. Father, to think about the depths through which you must have had to change language so that we could even catch a glimpse of who you are in our faulty human understanding is just immense. And Father, you have accommodated for us so well. Father, you've spoken, not just creation into existence, but Father, you've spoken your word to us, and we can receive it. Uh, That is a grace that we take much too well for granted. Father, we thank you for not just giving us your word, but Father, sending the word. The word made flesh. He dwelt Amongst us and Father, now that he has died and raised again and gone on high, we know that the word lives in us. So Father, let us listen. Let us listen to your word. Let us see that we are designed to walk together and journey together in community. Father, we have been united not just with Christ, but one, one another. There is no Greek, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. We are all one in Christ. So, Father, let us walk together in communion as we do this very physical and visible reminder of what it means to be united in your Son. As we fix our eyes on what is unseen, we can see clearly in front of us the bread being broken. Father, we can see that. Let it remind us to fix our eyes on you. Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.